and welcome back to Tell Me About It, where we commiserate about all the less than perfect moments life throws our way, where we get it all out in the open and make each other feel less alone in the process. I'm your host, Jade Iovine, and okay, I know I say this every week, but I'm so, so excited for you to hear today's conversation. Okay, first, I just have to tell you guys about this text that Kara sent me when we were talking about scheduling and rescheduling and conflicts, and I asked her if she could do a time that was soon to record this podcast. And she texted me back saying, I know what it's like to want to get something up and running, and women have to support each other. I nearly fell off my chair when I read that, because I knew in theory that she was all about supporting women. I mean, I've been following her forever, and I know that she posts about stuff like that all the time, but I didn't know that she walked the walk. I didn't know that she was really all about empowering the women in her life in real life. Kara is a true beacon of light, and she has this crazy judgment-free aura that just makes everyone gravitate towards her. She's honest, she's brave, she's smart, and it seems like she's always looking for ways to help others. She's perfect for this podcast because she tells the truth and opens up about her struggles only to make other women feel less alone in theirs. We talked about rejection, we talked about addiction and sobriety, and how she thinks of her past self. She's just fucking cool, and I loved our conversation and the depths we got into. She's a true example of like not letting your past get in the way of your future, something that I'm constantly working on. And I look up to her in so many ways, and I really think that you will too after listening. I swear, guys, this is one you don't want to miss. So let me give you some background, and then we'll jump right in. Kara Santana was born in El Paso, Texas. She left at 15 for California and has since built an impressive career. She is a renaissance woman and has established herself as an actress, as an entrepreneur, producer, writer, influencer, and activist. Kara most recently can be seen on the Starz series Vita. She also wrote a feature called Steps, which is based on true events and follows the lives of six people through three decades struggling with addiction and their fight for recovery. Activism plays a very important role in Kara's life. She returned to her hometown of El Paso and visited the border to advocate for awareness for immigration reform. She also works with organizations like UNICEF, The Art of Elysium, Las Americas Immigration Advocacy Center, and the Annunciation House. Kara is also an entrepreneur. She co-founded the Glam app, an on-demand beauty app. She served as CEO and later transitioned to Glam Squad, which I use all the time, and joined their team as global engagement officer. And now I won't make you wait any longer, I promise. Here is Kara Santana. Hi, Kara. Hi, Jade. Thank you so much for coming on. You are the greatest. No, I'm so excited to sit and chat with you. I know we have a lot of mutual friends, so it's nice to finally meet, albeit over Zoom. You've been a guest I've wanted since this show was just an idea, since the show's conception. Before it was anything, I knew I wanted to have you on. Oh, well, I hope I don't let you down. You will not. I already know you will not. <laughs> so where are you living right now? So I'm living at my best friend's house, Olivia Colpo, because I sold, yes, yes, I sold my house. I was an escrow on one property, decided on the last day of loan contingency removal that I wanted a view, and this home didn't have a view. <laughs> so I pulled out. Now I'm an escrow on another property, and my friend has been kind enough to let me live here at her home. So that's where I am. 
in her billiards room slash her glam styling room. What is a billiards room? Like where you play pool or something? Or <laughs> Well, I said that because she has a pool table, but I've never once seen her play pool. So and formal. I've been here for a few months. Yes. So fancy. So fancy. I made her seem very sophisticated. She'll appreciate that. She's in the other room in pajamas eating like a chicken salad. Wonderful. But I made her sound glamorous. Yes. Okay, so that's one big change that you've had in quarantine. What are some like big changes that you've made in quarantine? Like how have you changed as a person? I feel like this, this has been very like a transformative time for a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, for me, this has probably been the biggest season of growth professionally, personally, spiritually, mentally. I've really taken this time in the last, I can't believe we're coming up on a year of this now. I know. To It's just, it's bizarre and insane. And it still feels like we're living in some like post-apocalyptic Simulation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I've really tried to take this time to really go in. You know, I feel like I'm the type of person, I really like to be busy. I like to go, go, go. I'm not a pause and like take a breath type of gal. And in this time, I've really tried to recenter and refocus my priorities and really come out of this with a better understanding of who I am, who I want to be, stopping to smell the roses, not sweating the small stuff. So for me, this has just been full, full, full of change. I mean, I I started meditating daily, Mm -hmm. journaling daily, really connecting with a lot of sort of, you know, origin issues that I just never really even recognized. You know, growing up, I had a a pretty picturesque childhood, but I heard someone say the other day, you know, if there's more than one person in a family and then you probably got issues. So, you know, truth. (laughs) Right. And it's something that I feel like for so long, the way I grew up, you know, really facing sort of those sort of those things that you inherit Mm -hmm. growing up. uh, You know, I always sort of like neglected and pushed those things aside, maybe a little bit because I felt like, well, everything seems pretty good. Like I don't have anything to complain about, but Mm -hmm. life is relative and there's certainly things that I have you know, learn to address during this time because I've had the freedom to do that and really make peace with it. So I feel like I'm coming out of this sort of period of time healthier and happier than really I've ever been. Wow. I mean, that's unbelievable in so many ways. But this was like a big hitting of the pause button for you. Kind of like the first Mm -hmm. time in your life you really just stopped and were like, okay, I got to take inventory of who I am and what I want and my inner child work and all of that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's there's um, maybe I don't know if shame is too strong of a word, mm-hmm. but there's definitely, you know, maybe some negative connotation ab- about really doing that. And I'm learning that there there really isn't anything wrong with taking an inventory, like you said, and really going in. And I realize that everything in my life and everything that I'm, you know, have had to deal with now are things that like maybe I didn't address back then. Totally. I mean, things like as simple as like patience, you know what I mean? Yes. Like wh- where did that come from? My lack of patience, you <laughs> we know, didn't now I'm learning. It before. Exactly, yes. exactly. So I'm learning to sort of address all of those things and I'm having a really fun time investigating that and getting to know myself in a really authentic way. 
That's amazing. So now I'm going to get to know you in a very authentic way. Let's <laughs> we do it. Oh, I thought we you. were done. I was, no, I was like, that's it. It's over. <laughs> no, so I like to start off by talking about your 20s because I don't know how you felt about your 20s, but I'm 27 and I feel like your 20s are hard. You know, like you just are constantly looking to the left and right of you, thinking that everyone else mm. has it together while you don't. And mm -hmm. you kind of feel like you're supposed to have your life together. But like, are you a kid? Are you not? You know, it's it's mm. filled with a lot of identity issues, self-worth issues, all of that. So I, how old are you, first of all, if you don't mind me asking? I am 35. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so let's go 10 years back. Who was Kara okay. at 25? God, who was Kara at 25? What was your life like? What were you like? You know, I think I have always been someone, and I certainly was this way at 25, where I was, I was always, like, ready to get to the destination. I did not enjoy the journey. I was, like... Same. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I was in a really serious relationship at 25, mm -hmm a relationship that, that lasted over a decade. Um, so I was like sort of in the beginning stages of that relationship. I was, you know, on my own ish for the first time financially. I had been physically, you know, I left, I left home when I was like, I left home. That sounded so like through the snow and the mud. No, I, uh, I, um, I left home in Texas when I was 15 to go to boarding school for the performing arts in Los Angeles. So I was physically away, but you know, 25 yeah. was the first sort of like financial freedom I had. And I think I was someone who was just ready to get somewhere, but I don't even know that I really knew where that destination was. I was trying right. to sort of emulate an idea of what I mm -hmm. thought being a grown up was, you know, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. That makes too much sense, like very, mm. a lot of sense. I think when I was 25 and in my early 20s, I think I was really insecure about, you know, who I was on my own, my own identity, being an individual, standing sort of on my own two feet outside of the relationship I was in, outside of, you know, being my, my parents' daughter. I was really finding myself. I was you know, I was acting, but I don't, I wasn't having particularly like a lot of success at that point in time. And I was comparing myself to the women that were around me and their success and yes. their financial security. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I had a lot of fun when I was 25. I mean, I did, it wasn't like it was all doom and gloom. I, I had a lot of fun, but I wish that I had stop to really enjoy the fun, you know, mm -hmm. and not be so serious. I've just, I've always been kind of a serious person. I've mm -hmm. always taken things pretty heavily, you know, um, things that I watch affect some of my friends, like in our earlier years, they would just like roll off, they would roll off their shoulders. And I would, I just mm -hmm. sort of internalize everything. And in my early 20s, I think I was like really like grappling with that and like who I am and what does it mean and what kind of woman do I want to be and, you know, all of those yeah. things. As I'm hearing you talk, I'm kind of like, that's how I feel in so many ways. Like sometimes you just feel like too sensitive for the world around you or like too in tune with the world around you. And sometimes things that can roll off other people's backs, like you hold on to. So I, I that resonates with me for sure. 
But so you talk about you entering a relationship at 25. Mm -hmm. Who were you at 25 in terms of the relationship or just in terms of life versus Mm -hmm. who you are now? How have you changed? What have been the biggest differences? God, that is such a big, such a big question. I yeah, mean, it's, it, it really, I mean, it, it's really robust. Um, the, the, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I want to be, you know, thoughtful about, about that answer. I think women and I, and I fall into the category of this group of women, but I think generally women, we are nurturers, we're caretakers. We tend to be very selfless with our time and our energy. And certainly I have always been and was more so in my early 20s, someone who was willing to sort of sacrifice, you know, my time, my energy for the people around me and in relationships for sure as well. And sort of be the cheerleader and the caretaker, you know, of the people Mm -hmm. around me. And I think the biggest change for me now is recognizing that I can have healthy boundaries, mm-hmm. <laughs> still still be giving and available and supportive of the people around me and with my intimate relationships without neglecting my own needs. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I um, you know, I wasn't really good at in my early 20s. And then going back to sort of like the origin work that we talk about earlier, you know, I look at my mom and like, she is so that, you know, she will answer my phone call to this day at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. She's always there to help. She puts everyone ahead of herself. And that's something I I adopted. And that's something that I'm Mm -hmm. trying to work on now going, you know, I can be here for you, but I can't allow it to supersede what's in my best interest or what I need to do. So I'm, you know, I think that's probably the biggest change. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, how that manifested itself in your friendships, you know, like, or Mm -hmm. in your romantic relationships, like, was Mm -hmm. there a point where some friendships couldn't withstand you making boundaries or you starting to prioritize yourself? And like, how did you deal with that? Were there friendship breakups or like people you thought couldn't be in your life because of it? Yeah. You know, I, I've been really lucky, you know, for the last 10 years, I've had a really great group of women in my life who we all want the best for one another. And I haven't had to say goodbye really to any of those friendships. If anything, I think there has been a sense of yes, it's about time, put yourself first, Mm. or, oh yeah, you're too tired, no problem. Like, why didn't you just say so? And an acceptance to that, you know, recognition and vulnerability. I'm very fortunate that the women in my life are all so supportive of, you know, our, you know, self-growth, but also each other's. And so I'm really lucky in the sense that everyone was very accepting of those changes. And I never really gave people the opportunity to show reciprocity because Mm -hmm. as someone who, you know, 
was really keen on pleasing other people. I never really had an expectation that it would be returned. And especially in this last year and a half, these women have shown up for me in spades. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm living at one of my best friend's houses right now. And, you know, she lives kind of far out and they, you know, my other girlfriends drive out here. They, you know, they gather around me when I need them and vice versa. And so I've been, I have a, I have great women in my life. I don't know what I would do without them. Yeah. I think friendships like that are the winners. Yeah. So how has your self-confidence changed as you've gotten older? Hmm. You know, I think you start to recognize that your value is not on the way you look or um, what you can do for others, but your value is really like on the type of person you are. You know, who Mm -hmm. are you at your core And how do you show up for yourself and for other people? So Mm -hmm. for me, confidence comes from having a healthy self-esteem. And Mm -hmm. to have a healthy self-esteem, you have to do esteemable acts, you know, be of service. therapist always tells me that. Same thing. It's so true. It's true. I mean, I was having like such a crummy Friday, last Friday, Nothing significant. There was no major issue. Just one of those days where it was just like quarantine fatigue and, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, this isn't working out the way I wanted to. And I'm waiting on like Mm -hmm. my loan approval. And I got out of bed and I prayed and I meditated and I journaled and I still kind of felt iffy. And I was like, okay, you, you know, everything is relative. So my experience is my experience, but let me just get out of myself. And, you know, the way I believe the universe works, it presents you with what you need in that moment. And someone had posted something, a girlfriend of mine had posted something on Instagram about helping victims of the power outage in Texas, which is my hometown. And so I was like, oh, I want to do this. And so I signed up, found a link, got a phone list. And I was, you know, making calls for three Amazing. hours, c- connecting with people who who literally had nothing. And by the end of that day, you know, my, my issues felt that big. Right, like tiny. And I felt that much greater because I had been of service. So those are the things I really put value in. And those are the things that give me value, I think, today. It's true. Self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. It's true. Like there's no two ways about it. I want to go back to, because you're such a giver, like this is related to obviously, you know, you doing the was it phone banking kind of for Texas? Yeah, yeah. Phone, it was exactly phone banking with the oh, power by the people for Beto O'Rourke's That's amazing. company. Yeah, but you're always giving. And I think that idea of getting comfortable asking for help, asking for someone to help, like to console you, calling someone, that's been really hard for me. And mm. I, I'm curious, like how you worked through that and like how you got to the point of now being able to ask other people for help. And like, because mm-hmm. I always, for some reason, feel like, you know, I'm so feeling so shitty in the moment and then I'll feel better later. And I don't want to drag my friends along for when I'm feeling shitty in the moment. Cause I know like I'll regret it later or mm-hmm. like I'll have a vulnerability hangover and be like, why did I share that? You know? And I, I'm curious what you think about that. 
Well, no, I mean, it's so hard for me to do. I, I, all my friends are like, you, you know, like even the other day, my girlfriend Maeve called me and she was like, are you okay? I haven't heard (laughs) from you in literally four days. And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And she's like, you got to call me. Or I was on the phone with Stephanie, who's a mutual friend of ours on, on Friday night. And she was just like, what's going on? Like you haven't shared with me what's going on. It's like, oh, I I still struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And I have to keep myself accountable. But I think at the end of the day, I want to be a worker among workers, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be one of the many. I don't want to stand on an island by myself. So I have to be willing to be vulnerable. My invulnerability is what keeps me vulnerable, which keeps me isolated, which keeps me on my own. So I, and I don't want to live like that. And none of my friends have a problem asking me for anything. So why should I? <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> Problem asking them for anything. You know, but it is. It's, you know, and it comes from, you know, not wanting to be weak and not wanting mm-hmm. to feel helpless and all of the, you know, I had such a strong Girl, mother growing up. Yes, yes, yes. So it's, but it's like, that's not. Weakness is needing support and not being willing to ask, you know? And it's, yes. it's No, it's a pride thing at the end of the day. And also, like, as a child, like, I learned how to self-soothe really well. So, like, I don't know if, like, maybe you're just really good at doing that. And, like, Mm -hmm. I don't mind being by myself. I'm, like, totally cool. You know, I feel like that's how I process emotions. I'm always scared when I bring up problems or stuff that I need advice about to other people and get their opinions because I feel like once it comes out of my mouth, that makes the problem real and gives it life. And I'm so afraid that if I say it out loud, then that means that, I can't deny its existence anymore, you know? Yeah, I think it's about like that contrary action. It's like up until this point, like that hasn't worked for me. No. And so I have, right? So I have to be willing to do the opposite Mm -hmm. of what hasn't worked. And so, you know, I push myself. I, something about me that everyone knows, like I hate talking on the phone. I don't know why. I hate, Kara, I hate it. I oh my God, it. I'll never call you, yes. I promise. <laughs> Someone calls me and my heart sinks to my ass. I'm like, oh my God, I can't breathe. Like I get anxiety. I have phone anxiety. <laughs> oh my God, I am the same way. I And I'm yeah. terrible at returning phone calls. Me too. I just, I hate it. Just like text me. me. Too. Send an email. I know. Yes. I, a carrier pigeon, just anything but He's call so- me. Please. Don't make me get on the phone. Um, yes. But, but I, you know, I always feel so much better when I connect with one of my mm-hmm. friends, you know? And so it's just really about getting outside of, of my comfort zone and being willing to do that. And I, I never regret it. Yeah. Have you gotten better at that this year, you think? Yeah, I have because it's, you know, it's so funny. It's like we're all on our phones, you know, when we're at dinners. And then I feel like the universe was like, haha, you want to stay, you know, in your phone and not appreciate this human interaction? Well, so now all we have is our phones. So, yeah, I've I've definitely become better at being on the phone and 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 connecting. And, you know, we have a small group of, of people. I'm like, always getting tested. Everyone knows. So I'm, I always make everyone get tested before they see me. We have a good group of girlfriends. And, and so we've been able to interact, but yeah, connecting on the phone, that's, that's all we have. Um, yeah. and not taking for granted the human connection when we have it in person, but I am getting better at it, but I'm right. still just like, Oh God. I know it's hard. And like, so that you talk, you're talking about letting other people help you But I'm curious, how is the way that you treat yourself different from 25 to 35? Mm. 
a lot more grace and a lot mm-hmm. less judgment and a lot less, you know, it's so funny. I treat the people and have always treated the people around me much better than I have treated myself. You oh, know, I, yes, I'm preach. I mean, yes. I'm always hardest on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I think in my twenties, my self-talk was a lot more harsh mm-hmm. and unforgiving And then I would sit with my girlfriends who would have similar experiences and I would be so much more full of grace and compassion. And, you know, I'm always sort of, I'm the one everyone goes to when they have, they're in a pickle because I have no judgment. Mm -hmm. And yet I would constantly be judging myself and not sharing because I'm afraid of being, being judged, but someone could come to me and I'd be like, you're going to make whatever decisions right for you. I'm like, no one you'll Kara, know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm that person too. I'm yes. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to, I, I have started cause my therapist told me to, to like actually open that dialogue with myself and be like, wait, 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 hold on. How would you react if it was your best friend telling you this news or like having mm-hmm. this insecurity or this shame spiral? Mm-hmm. And that's like super helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we are just, we're our toughest critics and we're our biggest competition. We're really our only competition, you know? And so it's really just about being willing to give yourself the grace and compassion that you would give others. And so my self-talk is better. You know, I, I, now I say to myself, okay, you know, you can be anxious in this moment, but it's Mm -hmm. not going to make this moment any better. It's just going to make it full of anxiety and it's not going to do anything for the problem you're thinking about in the future, you know, except make the present more miserable. If I don't feel like doing something, I used to just do it no matter what. And now if I feel like not doing something, I just say, Hey, you know what? I don't, this doesn't work for me right now. I need to take care of myself. So it's just like allowing myself to be human and be in the human experience with, without any sort of judgment. That's beautiful like that I feel like that is exactly what you want to do when you get older is just have more grace for yourself you know like just let yourself be human and like you said like not get hung up knowing that anxiety only provokes more anxiety and you know all of that Mm -hmm. like just not letting yourself have a bad day and saying like that's okay and Mm -hmm. like making mistakes and saying that's okay I feel like that is the goal that we're all trying to reach right like just having more grace So what's something, I guess we kind of talked about negative self-talk there, but Mm -hmm. what's something that still gets to you? Like, what is something that still knocks your confidence and how do you, like, how do you stay resilient? You know, I think I I have a a lot of dreams for myself. You know, I have a lot of ambition and when I feel like I'm not living up to that Mm -hmm. and I'm not, you know, fulfilling the ideas that I have professionally for myself, I think that is really the biggest knock on my Mm self-confidence. But I I am, you know, I'm a believer in a higher power, you know, God, the universe, whatever you call it. And I just remind myself, like, you are exactly where you are supposed to be. There are no mistakes. And if you don't have what you want in this moment, it's because you're not supposed to have it. And I oftentimes say, I mean, I say this throughout the day, like, God, give me this or something better. Because I know that everything I've had up until now has been better than I could have imagined it. It might not have taken a trajectory the way I envisioned it, but I'm full of gratitude for everything that's come into my life. And so I know it's, you know, what's meant to be will always be. 
but it, it can be challenging for sure. Yeah. Like, do you compare yourself to other women often? Like, is that, do you compare yourself physically or professionally? And like, how do you not do that? Probably. I mean, I don't know if I can compare myself to. Cause you're such a girl's girl, you know, you're so like about empowering other women and all of that, but it must get to you at some point. Well, it's not really, nobody in my life is me. So it's like, no, there's right. no woman in my life who has the career I want to have because mm-hmm. the career I want to have is like very specific to me. Okay. So I wouldn't say that there is competition, mm-hmm. but I certainly can be and am inspired by different women in my life whether they're doing something outside of the box or taking a risk or following their dreams, those things inspire me. But as far as comparing myself, I think that that's, I've just never been one to really compare myself to other women um, or anyone really, because it's like, how do you compare like an orange to a grapefruit? You know, it's just like, you you know, it's like- totally. so, I mean, maybe if I found like another person who was exactly like me who wanted the exact same things I wanted and they were getting, yes. and they were maybe then, but no, I don't. And I just feel like, you know, I am not a believer in like, there is a limited, you know, piece of pie out there. Mm-hmm. I think like there is unlimited and a a win for any woman, whether they're a friend of mine or not, is a win for me. And so I just like to see the forward movement in our community. And and no, I don't, I compare myself to myself, Mm. you know, that's Mm -hmm. like more, it's like, oh, you're feeling freer or less encumbered by this and that and the other, like that's, this is where I want to be. Oh, you're, you're backsliding. Remember how peaceful mm-hmm. you were when you were in this moment. Let's get back there, but mm-hmm. not to other women. That's, that's a waste of time because no one's me. It's the damn truth. I just wish I had your brain and could, could just well, think that way. I, you know, I truly do. Cause it's, it, I mean, maybe it's my age also, I don't know, but it's, it's hard, you know, like with Instagram and everything, it can get to you, but you're right. Like a rising tide lifts all ships, you know, it's true. And especially as women, like we, there isn't an unlimited, there isn't a limited portion of pie, as you said, like, it's true. Mm-hmm. Everything you're saying is true. I just wonder, like, have you always been like that? Well, I think when it comes to comparing myself, uh, yeah, I have always, I don't, I've always yeah, just innately been like that. I've never had like a real competitive vibe with the, yeah. with the women or people in my life. Just, I don't know. I just never really have, but I've certainly, you know, I have insecurity about, will I accomplish my goals? Like, do I deserve it? Like that kind of stuff. Like as it relates to me, I'm not, you know, I'm so human. I have bad days where I'm just like, I feel like worthless today or what is my life? Or is it ever going to, am I ever going to like make it? What, you know what I mean? I have fear. Yeah. I have all of that stuff, but, but I have always been the type of person that was like, let me champion whoever is around me, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and authentically want them to succeed, you know? And, and I found I've attracted the same type of women, to be honest. Yeah. It sounds like you have great friendships as a result. I do, you know, and I, I have a, a group of us that are, we're all actors and it's like, Hey, did you get this audition? You'd be perfect for it. No, oh my God, let me send this to you. You know, oh, or that's so nice. Yeah. Yeah. Or I have a group of girlfriends that are more in like the social media space, which I, you know, also am in and, and I will be like, 
oh, hey, I got this offer for blah, blah, blah. It wasn't right for me. Would you want to do it? Or, hey, how much did they pay you? Like, this is what And we share that information. And it's about, you know, it's not about withholding. It's about transparency and openness because we want the best for one another. So right. I feel like you give that, you get that. And, mm-hmm. I, and I've always gotten that. Yeah, I feel like that is the way to combat, you know, those feelings of comparison is to promote other women and, you know, celebrate other women. It's really the only antidote, I feel like, for that kind of emotion. But you talk about, you know, comparing yourself to who you were in the past. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you ever feel so much of my shame spirals and anxieties or whatever are about like my past self? And that's something that I'm really working on is like, you know, reconciling that relationship with my past self and saying like, I didn't know better. I didn't, you know, if I'd known better, I would have done better. But Mm -hmm. do you ever feel ashamed of your past self? Well, I just don't, I just feel like shame is a wasted uh, emotion or feeling. It's like, ain't that the damn truth? You know, I think you know this about me, but I'm almost, you know, 17 years sober. And so part of the program, you know, that I, that I practice and have for the majority of my sobriety talks about we do not wish to shut the door on the past and guilt and shame like has no place in our life because every moment of my existence right has brought me to where I am so all those lessons that I learned as many times as maybe it took me to learn one lesson you know it got me to the point that I am in now so it doesn't really do me any justice to dwell, Mm -hmm. you know, or regret the past and wish to close the door on it. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I try, you know, I try really not to live in shame. I think there are lessons that maybe, I mean, I've always, ever since I was a little girl, I I was a little girl who like had to touch the stove to know it was hot. You could tell me Mm -hmm. 25,000 times not to touch it. And I'm just like, whatever, I'm touching it. Oh shit, it's hot. Maybe it won't be hot the next time. You know, I'm, I'm not girl. Um, and so, you know, stubborn to a fault. So if anything, it's really looking at the qualities, you know, the character traits, um, that allow me to, you know, have to learn lessons over and over again. Mm -hmm. And is there, you know, an easier, softer way to, to do that? But I certainly try not to judge myself for, yeah, taking longer to learn a lesson than somebody else, you know, which is really that, but that's really impressive. Like being the kind of person I'm the same way. Like I have to learn a lesson the hard way if I'm going to learn the lesson, but that's Mm -hmm. really incredible because there can be a lot of shame with that because you get dirty. You know what I mean? You get bumps and bruises in the process of learning things the hard way. So is, is that kind of something that's really prevalent in, in the program? Like, is that part of AA is like shame? Because I feel like shame would be very tied to addiction, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, when people yeah. are struggling to get sober and they can't get sober and they yeah. feel guilty or shameful about not being able to do it. I think, I think there's so many, I mean, I, I don't necessarily, it is such a huge, yes, to your question, it is such a huge part of sobriety in my experience, but I think mm-hmm. it's like, we are a culture mm-hmm. <laughs> of people who shame others, you know, totally. when you disagree, we shame you, you know, if yes. you have a different opinion, we shame you. If you make a mistake, we shame you. It's like, we are such a shamed and shameful culture we, You're so we right. don't give grace 
No, you know, never, none. We don't, you know, mm-hmm. and I always think like there's so many like these big, you know, social issues. And mm-hmm. I'm always saying like we're missing the lesson when we are so quick to cancel and shame people. There are absolutely circumstances where egregious behavior and needs to be confronted mm-hmm. and there needs to be um, a response to it. Mm-hmm. That being said, I feel like we as a culture miss the opportunity to teach, to give the lesson, to help change the direction of the path. Mm-hmm. And so personally, I go, okay, I didn't like the way that felt. I didn't. Now, why was I incapable at that time of changing that behavior, my own behavior? Let me look at that. Where does it come from? You know, and and taking an inventory, like we said earlier, you know, of that and then giving myself the grace and the freedom to be freaking human. You know, it's like, yes, is that and life is supposed to be a mess. And that's the fun is getting dirty and living in the mess of life and then picking yourself up, cleaning yourself up. And then you have to get dirty again because life isn't perfect. And that's what makes it fucking beautiful. Right. That, I mean, I, th- I think that's in Glennon Doyle's book, how she talks about, like, we think that life is supposed to be easy to be going mm-hmm. well. And like, mm-hmm. that's not life. Life is the whole spectrum of emotions and life is hard, you know, like mm-hmm. not to sound negative or anything, but that's how you know you're really living, you know, as if mm-hmm. you're stumbling and making mistakes and falling down continuously. But it's hard to remember. She says something about how like deconstruction is in, is essential to reconstruction. Yes. You know? Sometimes you have to tear it all apart to put it back together. Totally. And like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sure you feel the same way. Like anything that I like about myself has come from losses, rejections, mistakes, things like that. You know, I kind of want to go back to self-confidence a little bit and Mm -hmm. ask you, what is something in the past like five years that really knocked your confidence? I was up for a job um, on a, on a really big show really big director and I had auditioned for it and I had auditioned for it and I had auditioned for it and I you know they kept having me come back and it was you know it was like the perfect role for me in the sense that it cut we talked about immigration and it talked mm-hmm. about disparity you know social economic disparity and political socio disparity and and you know, it was it was about what's going on in the world right now, and you know, and I was like, this role is like right made up your for alley, yeah, right up my alley, yeah. And so I, you know, I audition, I audition, I audition, blah blah blah. And um, they they're like, all right, like they can't find anyone else for the role. They want to test you, which means you sign contracts for it, mm. and you go in, and you're gonna, you know, you're gonna meet with the director again. You're gonna read for the director. You're gonna have a work session. And I was like, oh my god, this is one of those jobs that's gonna change the course of my career and I go in and I did a great job I knew I did a great job felt like I connected with the director I left and um they called me and they're like it's yours like it's your job and I was like oh my god I mean I was just so excited I sobbed I was like I you know it's everything's gonna change this one thing of course and then I get a call maybe I don't know, an hour later saying that they had to uh, rescind the offer of the role because the director 
was doing some research on me and Googled me and saw that I had, you know, done, I think a podcast talking about, oh yeah, I get Botox and I've done filler. And I was really honest about that. And so he said that I wasn't a quote unquote real woman and that I, yeah. And so unfortunately he wasn't willing to work with me now that he knew that, that about me. And I mean, that really- it really shook my confidence. I mean, I was devastated. I, I wrote a letter to him. Did you? Yeah, I wrote a letter Did to you him. And you I, sent it? I sent it. I sent it. It was just like t- telling him how much I love this role and that, you know, yeah. that what, I mean, whatever. And, you know, no, he, he had it in his crazy. mind. Mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. crazy that he heard you saying it. It's not like you're walking around like with duck, li- you know, crazy filler, like in your face. You're right. stunning. He he didn't even know. <laughs> he didn't know when I was auditioning, but he heard it one interview with Hannah Brockman. <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> which interview <laughs> it is. I was like talking no to Hannah. Way. And I was like, yeah, I'm for Botox and filler. I've done it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like if you, if you want to do it to, and I yes. don't, by the way, don't regret saying it because I don't think that we should be shrouded in secrecy no, or God bless you for being like real. And he, he was like, well, now that I know, like I can't unsee it and I, I don't want to work with someone who's not a, a real woman. And, um, a like, real, I'm a real woman. woman. Like I'm going to yeah. wipe my ass with that phrase. That's a terrible mm-hmm. fucking phrase. Mm-hmm. A real woman. What is a real a woman? A real woman. I don't know. Apparently not. Me, Sorry, that gets I, me all hot and bothered. No, for sure. It was so upsetting. I mean, I was devastated and it really shook my confidence. It was like, did, was he just looking for a reason to say no? Was he, you know, did he really not like me? Was the network? Your brain goes to mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And at the end of the fucking day, who knows why it didn't go my way? That didn't go my way, but it mm-hmm. didn't. And I was like, I can be the kind of person who's like afraid to speak my mind and be afraid to be truthful and vulnerable and transparent. But that's sort of the essence of who I am. So if I don't do that, then what the fuck do I do? Right. And, you know, I guess it wasn't meant to be, but that it really, it really, I mean, that knocked me down for a minute, for sure. For sure. So like, can you kind of walk me through how you rebuilt after that? Like, who did you call right after? Like, who did you lean on? What mm. did your life look like after that moment? You know, I, at first I was just like so shocked and stunned. And I kind of gave myself that night to be like a mess. Yes. And, you you got to give yourself like, a night. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm sure I had ice cream and, you know, I, I, I talked to my, you know, my, my fiance at the time about it and mm-hmm. he imparted supportive words of wisdom of about, you know, like you can't change someone's opinion of you, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. you are who you are and that's what makes you who you are. And mm-hmm. I called my girlfriends. I have a great team of women, some of who I think you you've met and, you know, people on my team and I, just allowed myself to like really grieve that opportunity and also like get some perspective. It's like that one thing doesn't change your life, you know, forever. Mm -hmm. That's me putting a set of expectations out of desperation on something that I want because I think that's what's best for me, but I don't know what's best for me, but it was hard. And it just took, you know, and then I was like, well, I don't want to audition for this type of role anymore or that type of role anymore. And then it, and then you just kind of like, you stop playing God and you just, eventually time heals everything and then you just like get back out there and you try again and and you just 
you got, I believe, you know, you don't have to do anything, but I, I'm of the opinion that like everything happens for a reason. And so I don't know Mm -hmm. necessarily what that reason is at this moment, but I don't know. It just didn't work out and I'm okay with that now. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't like very like empowering, but that's the truth. You know, sometimes you have to just sit in the shit, you know, and there's nothing anyone can say or do. It's just like, this sucks right now. Sit in the shit. That's the message though. Like that's what I'm all about with this podcast is like, it doesn't have to end in a happy ending. You know what I mean? Because so often it doesn't. Mm -hmm, And you mm -hmm, can, mm -hmm. but I think it is so empowering of you to say, to sit in the shit because sometimes that's just what you have to surrender. You know, and let yourself feel it. It's totally. I was just, but I just like saw, saw like a funny like buzz statement or whatever. Like, yeah, <laughs> talking about sitting in the shit. Like that's the quote that comes from this this podcast. So, Kara Santana talks about sitting in shit. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> like I can see that's a great soundbite. No, but yes, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's like, of but course, you, that's yeah, the no, most yes. eloquent thing I could have said. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, we think you need to sit in shit, period. You know, sometimes you do. Yeah. And I want to ask you, you know, there's nothing easy about going through a breakup and talking about sitting in shit. What has that looked like for you? Just on a personal level, how have you grown through this breakup? Gosh, you know, I think, you know, I'm a woman and just like, Every other girl out there, you go through the stages of grief or loss when you're when you lose anything in your life, mm-hmm. relationships included, um, and mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you process it. You, I've always sort of been the type of person like I'm not here to condemn or to condone anyone's behavior other than my own. And to really mm-hmm. reflect uh, at what I bring to the table in any and every relationship. And to be willing to self-assess, mm-hmm. focus on myself and who I want to be and how I want to be. And, you know, clean my side of the street if I have to. And then be willing to, like, appreciate the lessons, appreciate the love, and then move yeah. the fuck on. You know? And so I yes. think... My personal circumstances aligned in a way that I was able to really take the time that I needed to, to really yes. work through the end of, of a really lengthy relationship. And that, right. that was great. Right. So you're like kind of, you know, starting over and rebuilding, you know, like who you are and your relationship with yourself. Do you have any advice for women going through a breakup in quarantine, like do's or don'ts? You know, I just think it's so important to remember this too shall fucking pass. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I threw in the fucking there because it was just like... One more time for the people in the back. For the people in the back. It's like... Yes. Life goes on. Things pass, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're so much stronger than we think we are. And we're so much Mm -hmm. more resilient than we think we are. And like, whether... I mean, I've seen people go through some really painful experiences during this time you know Mm -hmm. loss of family loss of Mm -hmm. parents getting sober breakups divorces Mm -hmm. losing children trying to get pregnant and being unable to conceive right losing people to this disease you know to to this pandemic and I'm always so blown away by human strength and how resilient we are mm-hmm. and how, you know, if you're, if you're willing to just 
to go through it. You know, you can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't, you know, if you can just go through whatever the experience is, like you'll come out of it. You'll come out of it on the other side. And in my experience, what I've seen is everyone who's come out of it on the other side has come out of it stronger. You know, I don't like the word better or worse, but with a newfound understanding of themselves or their circumstances. So, you know, sometimes we have to go through really, really dark times to see a bright, bright light, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So like not to rush through any emotion, you know, just to sit in the shit, as we said. Sit in the shit. Sit in the shit. Just enjoy it. Okay. So that's a perfect place for us to take a quick break. Okay, great. Great. What do we do during the break? We just take a break? Yeah. What happens? We exhale. We exhale. (laughs) Addiction is something I've always wanted to talk about on the podcast. Um, I've had several family members struggle with it. I'm an Al-Anon. You know, it's very much so a big part of my life. So for those who don't know, Al-Anon is a, is kind of like AA, but it's for friends and family of addicts for them to get support. I'd imagine this has been an incredibly difficult time for addicts, especially at the beginning of quarantine when there weren't meetings and there weren't, you know, many resources for them at home. And um, I know that you have been sober for 16 or 17 years now. Be 17 April 1st. Congratulations, man. That's amazing. What a feat. Pretty wild. It's pretty fucking wild. 17 years like that. Did it do you do you feel like you blinked or do you feel like it's felt like 17 years? My gosh, you know, I think it depends on the day. It's like I don't totally you know what I mean? It's like sometimes I it it feels like it was yesterday, you know, and then other days Mm -hmm. it feels like, well, this has been a long road. Right. Right. Like where I'm at, but totally. Yeah. So you're, you know, I love how open you are about this topic. And I think you're such an incredible advocate for sobriety and such, you know, an incredible role model to so many people. Can you kind of walk me through what your journey was to sobriety and how this all began for you? Yeah, sure. You know, I think we talked about it, you know, very early on about just feeling almost like too sensitive for the world. And that was certainly Mm -hmm. my experience as a young girl. I just always remembered feeling like things affected me differently than they affected other people around me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really just took on the weight of the world and uh, was just too sensitive for my own good. And you know, once I found drugs and alcohol, it was really easy to sort of escape all of those feelings, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the feelings of inadequacy and insecurity and the feelings of shame and all the things that we've talked about earlier. And all of that went away and I didn't have to worry about you and mm-hmm. I didn't have to worry about me and what you thought mm-hmm. about me. And, and it, you know, it worked for some time. And then, you know, I... I'm pretty open about this, but I I OD'd um, when I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, was like in the valley, struggling actress, like ODing. And I was like, oh, this is a tragic cliche if I've ever heard of one. (laughs) I was like, if I can just get through this, I promise I will never, ever drink or use again. And you know, I got sober. That's my sobriety day, April 1st, 2004. Wow. And, you know, what I didn't realize and 
why I am so vocal and honest about my journey is growing up where I grew up, you know, in an affluent suburb of Texas where it didn't really matter what was going on in the inside as long as the outside looked perfect was that I didn't know that addiction was a disease. I didn't know alcoholism Mm. was a disease. I didn't know that addicts and alcoholics could look like me, come Mm. from where I came from. You know, it was certainly very stigmatized and stereotyped. And for the first five years of my sobriety, and I might put air quotes on my sobriety because, you know, I was not drinking and I was not using, but I wasn't treating the cause of my addiction, you know, I, mm-hmm. I believe that using drugs and alcohol is but a symptom, you know, to Absolutely. a larger problem. Absolutely. And yeah, that's my belief. And I, uh, you know, I didn't know that there was a place that I could mm-hmm. go or other people who had this experience. And so we, you know, we talk about guilt and shame and I just was like, what yes. the hell's wrong with me? And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to to find, you know, my tribe of people, as we say, and, and a program, a 12-step program that was able to allow me to sort of go through the stages in the 12 steps of recovery, which I'm still a member of that, you know, program now, 17, mm-hmm. almost 17 years later. But it certainly is something that I feel like if I can help one person feel without shame and not stigmatized by, you know, the disease of addiction, just by sharing my story, I will. And so, you know, it's something that I choose to talk about. I'm also, you know, I'm a double winner. So I also go to the rooms of Al-Anon and, um, yeah, nice. What's a double winner? Of alcoholic and Al-Anon. Okay. <laughs> so it's like you qualify. You do both. both. Yes. Yeah, you do both. Well, I mean, it's like, I, I was like, oh, why didn't I do this sooner? Totally. Like, Totally. All addicts have to deal with other addicts. It's, <laughs> Fuck her, it's true. It's true. <laughs> have to deal. You know what I mean? It's yes. crazy. But, but I think, you know, whether or not you qualify in, in those programs or not, I feel like anyone could benefit. A hundred percent. Yeah, the principles and the spirituality that comes with the programs, these 12-step programs. It's all about accountability, not focusing mm-hmm. on what you can change in other people, but focusing on what you can change in yourself, removing your, you know, defects of character, mm-hmm. apologizing, cleaning your set. It's like... If everyone practiced that shit, we'd probably be a lot better off as a society. A hundred percent. I just want to comment on you saying that you, why you're vocal about it. And I think you're such a gift uh, to everyone out there that's struggling with this and not because you're gorgeous, you're successful, you have everything on paper. You know what I mean? And I think like it's so important for people to see their story in someone else and know that like, Mm. it is not a reason they won't get to point B. It's like actually the reason they will get there, you know? And I, I just like, so appreciate you being that person. Oh, that's really sweet to hear. And thank you for saying that. You know, I think that, you know, I think the human condition is, is complex and, and Mm. not everyone, you know, has the same, condition but Mm -hmm. the experiences that we share the feelings that we share you know we may cope different but everyone goes through like pain and loss and anger and insecurity and that's why you started this podcast is because you want to be able to relate and identify 
and have Absolutely. people do the same, I, I would assume. And yeah, so exactly. I don't want to withhold, you know, my experience mm-hmm. and, and not be a part of, of the human experience. And yeah. I think it's important to share and be willing to open, being willing to open, be open and share. So. Yes. Yes. Do you find it's healing for you when you're open or do you kind of do it for others or is it like both? I mean, I think that, you know, most selfless acts have a selfish component because like when you're sharing and when you're connecting, you typically feel better, right? Like you yourself feels better. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think for me, I just, I remember what it was like to not know what was wrong with me and to feel so lost and so alone and so in fear and so full of shame. You know, this was like, in my early, you know, adolescence and my teenage years and, you know, into sort of my early, early twenties. And so it's like, if I can spare someone, you know, that pain or let them know they're not alone, then like, I'm well, I'm, you know, it's easy for me to share my experience. I mean, I, this is, this is the one life I have right now, you know. I'm like, you're inspiring me right now. Yes, like that. Mm. you're absolutely right. And you do that, you know, like you have probably saved so many people from even just giving people the language to talk about it is so powerful. Mm. And, you know, like shame thrives in silence. Shame can't thrive mm-hmm. if it's language. So it's like mm-hmm. you give that gift to other people. And just like even, you know, when you got sober is unique to you and like, you know what that feels like so much. So you know mm-hmm. that you, you want to let another woman or man or whomever know that they're not alone. And I think that's mm-hmm. just fucking amazing. Um, but again, I need to take you back to the hard part. So yeah, as I always do, do. So when was your first interact? Because you were young, you were 18 for your overdose. But how old were you when drugs and alcohol first came into your life? So funny. There's a, a picture that my parents still pass around. I think it's like so adorable. I, if I had my phone, I'd show you. But it's literally like I have like a little baby pigtails. I'm, I must be three and I'm like holding a thing of beer and I'm like sipping on it. And they're like, right. oh, look how cute this is. And I'm like, it's not that cute. I'm an alcoholic. Like, I don't know why we're still passing that photo around, guys. Like, let's not frame this, but, please. <laughs> let's not. They think it's still like, they're like, oh, Kara. Um, I don't really remember necessarily like my first, first, first drink, but I remember being like 15 years old and knowing, like I really romanticized, you know, I, we, I spoke earlier about like kind of always wanting to get to the destination and always wanting to to be, you know, this idea of this adult. And, and I always sort of romanticized drinking and using and I was always really like, there's an allure about it. And I, and mm. you know, I not having a healthy relationship with drugs and alcohol at 15 years old, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a party at my house. My mom was out of town for work. I convinced my brother to take my dad to our, you know, cabin so that I could get the house alone. I paid off the babysitter. I got alcohol and threw a huge party at my house and everything was great until um, Ronnie Lowenfield crashed his car on the way <laughs> Damn home. it, Ronnie. <laughs> Damn it, Ronnie. And um, his mom came, came over to my house to see what was going on and uh found me like in a total blackout and I am told that my response was to fuck off which to, you know you don't you're not supposed to say to adults and <laughs> specifically when when the adult you're saying that to's father is the priest oh, um geez. the head priest of the Episcopalian school that I went to that did not go over well 
Um, And that was really the first time I remember there being like real consequences, but also real relief to everything I was feeling. So it was like, on one hand, I felt such relief from like all of like the insecurity, you know, I'm I'm a Jewish girl in Texas, the last name Santana, going to an Episcopalian school. I had a lot of like sort of identity issues like growing up. And so I remember that experience drinking, I had a lot of relief from all of those feelings. And it was the first time that I had any real repercussions from my drinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was lucky. I hit like a pretty, I mean, it's a low bottom in the sense that I overdosed, but a high bottom in the sense that I, you know, I drank for four years. I, I drank and used drugs for four years. And like you abused that for four years or was it casual? Was it more casual for the four years? And then, or like, no, was it I, I was, a, I was, a, I was, a, yeah, I was, it was pretty risky. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was a, I was a full on drug addict, you know, mm-hmm. I, um, and that's okay. You know what I mean? Hey, girl. Like, you know, yes. I own it. Um, and, it yes. and it was risky. I mean, alcohol never really did it for me. I really liked cocaine. Yeah. Um, that was like my thing. And yeah. so, and, and that's what I overdosed on. And, but I would do whatever I could get my hands on pretty much. Yeah. Like I didn't really care. So what did it do for you? I know some people say cocaine can give you like a personality. I think it had the opposite effect on me. Okay. Like, believe it or not, it just kind of like Level mellowed up. me. Totally. Yeah. You know, and, and I wasn't, my using was not like glamorous and fun. I wasn't like out, you know, at the clubs, you know, yeah. like having fun. Like I was like right. sitting in my apartment in Van Nuys watching E! True Hollywood Stories, Mysteries and Scandals, playing solitaire, listening to Bobby right. Darren on repeat and like snorting lines of cocaine. Like it wasn't right. like really that exciting (laughs) and so you know that's like the depths of like despair that like addiction can take a person you know and absolutely and again like I came from a really privileged really healthy loving family you know and so Mm -hmm. I didn't know like I was like what like what how is this my life you know Mm -hmm. and that's why I'm like so vocal about sharing my story because it's like it can happen to fucking anyone and we have a drug pandemic and a drug crisis right now that is killing people in our country more than almost any other thing and we are so afraid to talk about it. It's so yes. stigmatized. People are so afraid to be judged. And it's like, I would rather tell my story and save a life than fucking be another part of this problem and keep silent and let people live with all of this, you know, uh, misconception and yes. untruths. And it's just like, I can't, I gotta be, yes. I gotta be honest. What is something that you think that people misunderstand about addiction? Like, what's one of the main things? Well, I think people think that you should be able to control it. You know, I don't think that they... Like, it's a disease, period. Yeah, it's a disease. Mm -hmm. It's recognized by the CDC. Exactly. Um, You know, it it is a disease. And I think... Like cancer. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that makes people really uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. it is so stigmatized where we're unable to have those conversations. And I think the way that we criminalize addicts mm-hmm. as opposed to rehabilitate them yes. sort of aids in, in a system. You have such a broken system. Yeah, it aids in, in the brokenness of that system. And so I think if there was more education and more awareness about the disease of addiction 
and it wasn't so shrouded in, you know, judgment and and shame and secrecy Mm -hmm. that we would have a lot more empathy and compassion to people, you know, struggling. So I think that's the biggest misconception is that you should be able to control it. Yeah. Like, I love that you say it can happen to anyone because it's so true. And that's how I feel about, you know, obviously there's an opioid epidemic, Mm -hmm. but now there's like this rise of benzos, you know, and like them being prescribed and people abusing those. And it's, it, it can truly get out of hand so quickly, you know? Well, and the lack of education, like, like you're talking about benzodiazepines and it's like benzodiazepines are incredibly dangerous. And if you use them Mm -hmm. and so addictive, and so addictive. And if you use them for a prolonged period of time, it alters your brain chemistry. And you have a lot of young people who are abusing benzos, get off of mm-hmm. them, their brain chemistry shifted, they're depressed, and then they kill themselves. And it's mm-hmm. like, we're like, what's happening? You know, and of course, like everyone talks about the opioid epidemic and it's, you know, it needs to be spoken about, but mm-hmm. it's like alcohol, you know, it's like yes. alcohol kills more fucking people than any other fucking drug, you know? Yes. And, and it's legal, you know, and right. we're not talking about it like we talk about sugar and diabetes. Like we're right. not having these conversations and bringing awareness. And, you know, I we were talking earlier, like I, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is really work on projects that I'm super, super passionate about. And I wrote a film and I'm trying to get it financed. And so you would think people would be like, oh, this is, you know, great. And uh, people are like, oh, you know, it's just such heavy material. People don't really want to talk about drug addiction. And it's like people are afraid to have those conversations. They'll say that until someone in their family starts suffering from addiction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No one is exempt from, you know, like. It is. You're absolutely right. You know, this is a disease that does not discriminate. No, it does not. No, it does Mm-mm. not. Yeah. I mean, I had an experience where like I was prescribed Xanax and Benzos or whatever for my mm-hmm. anxiety and stuff. And so I was prescribed it when I was like 21 or 22 with, of course, like no other instructions beyond take this when you feel anxious, which are very loose parameters for someone who's anxious all the time. And after about like two years of being on it, having like the worst panic attacks ever and barely being able to leave my house... I wanted to come off it thinking that it would be easy like any other medication I've ever taken. And I was like, okay, I want off. And they were like, well, it's not so easy. You know, like you have to mm-hmm. wean off of that. And that made you me- You have to taper it. Ta- exactly. <laughs> and I did. And luckily I nipped it in the bud, but I think it's really important to bring up because so many people are prescribed benzos and it can get so out of control. And I was like, how did I get here? How did, how did that happen? You know, like I was like, thought I was doing all the right things, like going to therapy and like, you know, I, I, and it just took a hard left, you know? So I just, well, and that's the thing like people aren't talking about. It's like, we are creating a new generation of addicts because we are prescribing medication that is so dangerous. I mean, Lisa Ling just did a documentary on CNN about benzodiazepines because people don't really talk about benzos, you know? And I think when people talk about opioids, they talk about heroin. They don't Mm -hmm. talk about the prescribed Oxycontin and Oxycodone and how we're over-prescribed as like a society. You know, when I was, got sober, I had really bad withdrawals and, you know, so I, you know, I OD'd and I, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I went to the hospital and, and, 
you know, they were like, you're going to have withdrawals and blah, blah, blah. And they prescribed me Xanax. And I never like took it because I was just like, well, this, I think I like knew intuitively. I'm like, this feels counterproductive. God bless. Like, Thank God. You, you know, yeah. I never did it, but it's like, that's, that's the solution. Or I, you know, I have friends who go in for like a knee surgery or get their wisdom tooth pulled and they're like, here's oxy cotton. And you're just like, what? Like, totally. this, the, you know, and then they have a hard time getting off and they don't know they have yes. to wean themselves off. And it's like, why are you prescribing stuff that like, I can't just stop taking without exactly. risk of dying. They're just giving out like candy. Bonkers. Literally like bonkers. bonkers. Sounds like a grandma, but you know, it is crazy. <laughs> it's just it is nuts. So it I want to like, what was it like getting sober in your early twenties? So like kind of walk me through. So you were hospitalized for your overdose and were you mm-hmm. like immediately like, I got to change my life or was there an intervention mm-hmm. of some sort? Did you go straight from the hospital to rehab? What did no, that I never went to, I never went to rehab. I was sort of scared straight. You know, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to die. I wasn't mm-hmm. using cause I wanted to die. I was using cause I didn't want to feel. Um, but now that I knew that the risk of, you know, death was imminent, I knew I couldn't go back to drinking and using. And so I just kind of white knuckled it, you know, for the first five years, cause I didn't know that there was a program for people like me. I didn't know there was anywhere to go. And can you kind of educate me on like overdoses in general? Of course, like everyone's situation is so different, but mm-hmm. is there, did you just take a little more than normal that day or how did it kind of, like for people that don't know, like how can you? Yeah. Well, for, for me, you know, I had been doing drugs, you know, mm-hmm. daily and yeah. multiple times a day. And so there kind of hit a point where it was like, I just couldn't really, I didn't feel like I was high anymore. You know, you're always sort of chasing, at least my experiences, you're always sort of, yeah, chasing that, that feeling that you get the first time and you never really get it. And, um, I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel like I was getting high. And so I snorted a bunch of water to get it all to go down. And, you know, overdosing is a very like specific feeling and Mm. I never had it before, but I knew exactly what it was. Um, I guess the best way to explain it is if you took a match and you lit it on the back of a matchbox, that heat, it was just like all the way up my neck. No way. And you found that other people have felt that also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. That's how I would describe it when I say that. People are like, oh, my God, yeah. yeah. And then I, once I heard someone say that, and I was like, oh, my God, yeah, that's what I, yeah. that's what I say. And my, my fingers went numb, and my toes went numb, and my, I had this weird taste in my mouth, and my heart was racing. And I was like, do you know what a brownout is? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, so you're like, you're in and out. Like you, you're not like completely blacked out, but you're not like completely coherent. And I was just sort of in this state of like, oh my God. And I, I mean, I knew it was happening. My heart was racing and I started throwing up and I was really hot and I couldn't get, you know, cold anymore. And, and I, you know, I called 911 on myself and I, 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 then I blacked out. I lost consciousness. And thank God you called before, right? Thank God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And thank God they answered because I had been in a stage where I was like, not they answered 911, but they sent someone because I had, I had pretty bad like cocaine psychoses and I, I would call the cops on myself. Often. No way. <laughs> like, just yeah, tattling like someone's on following. <laughs> yeah. I was like, someone's following. I, mean, I had paranoia. I was like, someone's on the top of my, I mean, it was like, it was, it was bad shit, but, um, yeah. 
that's like the depths of like where addiction can take you. But um, mm-hmm. so, you know, when I came to, you know, I felt like I pretty immediately like felt okay, but I just, and I think that's why, you know, people go back to doing it. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. it's not really like, a, it didn't feel like a lingering anything, but I just knew that like, if it could kill me once, it could kill me twice. So I just, right. I just abstained, you know, which was worse for me because it was like, now I have the sa- all the same feelings and emotions and the guilt and the shame that I've suppressed for so long and no way to medicate myself and to feel better. Right. So I was just like out there like a crazy person, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. What'd that look like before? Like, when did you really get a firm handle on your sobriety? You know, my early, early 20s, like, you know, I would say 20, 24, mm-hmm. you know, 25. I. So what did your life from 18 to 24 look like? You know, I think it was just a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity, a mm-hmm. lot of self-doubt. You were sober just not doing the the additional work. Yeah, I was we what the term is dry. <laughs> it was dry. Okay, great. Great. Mhm. Dry. That's the official terminology. Okay, perfect. Um, I'm yeah. here I'm with it. <laughs> there you go. Um so I was dry during that period of time and and I just you know, it. you just feel like, you know, like your heart and your soul and your fucking spirit are just not well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know that I could ever articulate exactly what it, what it feels like to, to live sort of as an untreated, you know, alcoholic. And I'm sure everyone's experience is different, but for me, it was just a lot of self-loathing, a lot of pain, a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity, and a lot of like what we would say, like spiritual malady. Like I, I Mm. had no like sanity, you know, and I had no belief that anything would, would be okay. It's just, everything felt, you know, bad. I was like a walking zombie really until I, until I found recovering. For those like five years. Mm -hmm. Until I found true recovery. And what kind of, what first got you, what inspired you to get into AA? I met a handsome boy. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's nothing like it. <laughs> Literally, yes. I was I was at the Church of Coffee being on Sunset Boulevard Amazing. in Fairfax, which has now been converted to a Starbucks. And I had nothing going on in my life because I was, you know, a dry, you know, addict right. and alcoholic. I mean, forget having right. ambition or career or anything like yeah. that. So I was ha- having coffee. And yeah. and this this guy walked in and he was wearing like all white and sunglasses and I did not know him and I just thought to myself oh my god who is this guy like he's just so cute and I don't know why he walked up to me and he was like he he started talking to me and that night we went we went to dinner and he was like do you want something to drink and I said oh no I don't I don't drink I drink I like can't control it so I just I just don't drink and he was like oh are you sober and I was like what's that he was like like you don't drink I was like, yeah, no, I don't drink. Yeah. And he was like, oh, do you go to like 12-step meetings? And I was like, what? No. I was like, I don't even, what? No, I don't even know yeah. what that is. And then the next night he <laughs> texted me and was like, hey, do you want to come with me to a meeting tonight? And I thought he meant a business meeting because oh, I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, well, this is moving quick, but he's cute. I'm he really wants to come to a business meeting. Yeah. Coffee bean is closed, so I'll be there. And it ended up being a really big, um, well-known meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Los Angeles. And wow. um, there was a really great speaker that night who 
he's publicly sober, but I, I think he's publicly sober. Yeah. I won't say his name, but really big speaker. Yes. Um, and with a lot of time, but like Mexican former gang banger with tattoos and a handlebar mustache. And he's like 70 at the time that he was speaking at this meeting. And I was just like, what, where the fuck am I? Right. But he said all of these things that really relate that I related to. You know, mm-hmm. just how he felt on the inside. And that was my introduction to, to 12-step programs. Wow. And um, yeah, going ever since. What a happy accident. Like, thank God. There are no accidents. Yeah. You know, like that's There the are no accidents, you know. That's incredible. So can you kind of tell me, you know, what did it feel like being sober at a time where your friends are probably like, you know, all first starting to drink or like, you know, really abusing Mm -hmm. alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. Like, was it hard for you? Did you feel othered in a way or did you find your tribe pretty quickly? I didn't. I I don't know why. I've just never suffered from FOMO. I have literally no idea why. And I was just really, yeah, confident in the decision that like I couldn't drink or use because I knew the consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that, you know, my reality wasn't the reality necessarily of my peers. And, you know, in every home I've owned, I have alcohol. And I just, I don't know. It was really easy for me to be like, I can't drink or use. Mm Mm-hmm. That's for me. And mm-hmm. everyone, like, it didn't affect me. And then I would watch people, you know, some people drank and used normally and other people acted like idiots. And when the people acted like idiots, I was like, thank God that's not me anymore. Right. And I'm here if you need me. And, right. you know, I don't know. It just, I know that this is not the experience of everyone. Um, so I'm sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. But for me, I didn't really struggle with not being able to to drink or use at, at that young of an age is you know when I turned 21 like I didn't think about it I was like yeah no I it took me to the gates of insanity it. like I did it yeah. like well, I don't need to do it again like yeah you're you're like I'm I've good. seen what it can do to me and it, I think it's really important that you hold on to that how it affects me like even just you were describing it at the beginning of this like that your friends would be able to like have things roll off their back and just like we're mm-hmm. you know it, it didn't affect them as easily. And that's kind of the same as drugs and alcohol. It's like, it, you know, you don't have to go around saying to other people, like, you might die, you know, but knowing that it could lead there for you, I think mm-hmm. is what's important, right? It's like a very personal yeah. journey. It's not something you need yeah. everyone to be doing with you. No. And I'm also like, just because I can't drink doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to, you know, right. I like, you know, my girlfriends drink around me all the time. And is it hard for you to be around drunk people because they're just so annoying? <laughs> well, no. You know what? I think I, I think at you know this point in my life when we go when we go out and my girlfriends drink, it's you know it's like right, a different type of yes. yeah, it's tame. Um, but no, you know, I I just I know what works for me and what doesn't work for me, but that's yeah. my experience, and it doesn't need to be that way for everybody else. I'm always just like, just because I can't partake doesn't mean you can't. So like, right. let me pour you a glass of champagne. Right. Like I'm fine with it. Right. So it, what's been most crucial in maintaining your sobriety for you? Yeah. You know, I, I think for me, the most effective thing has like been a belief in a higher power, mm-hmm. a 12 step program and a connection to people who suffer from the same disease that I do. So that mm-hmm. one, I never have to forget Two, I can be of service and three that I can you know, be a part of a community that is coping with the same mental illness mm-hmm. as you as you will 
as, as I am. So Mm -hmm. it's that connectivity, that human connection. So those three things I think are really important to my recovery. Are there, if you don't mind me asking, like what, are there any things that trigger you and what do you do when you feel like, did quarantine trigger you at all? Or like, does a heartbreak trigger you or, you know, what is that? To drink? Yeah. Or yeah, I guess to like escape, to want to escape your mind. Oh, well, I'm an actor, so I always want to escape. You know what I mean? It's like, I think fantasy was my first addiction, you know, it was like anything to get me outside of my, my mind really. But, um, no, I really, I don't have the, like, as we say, the phenomenon of craving left me pretty early on. So I don't Mm -hmm. ever think of like drinking and using, but certainly feelings of self-pity and Mm self-doubt and, you know, the obsession that happens in the mind and like replaying, like those things happen all the time. And so it's like, well, I, I need to pray. I need to meditate. Mm-hmm. Um, need to go to a meeting. I need to reach out and call a friend in the program, or even a friend who's not in the program. Have a conversation. Get outside of myself. Be of mm-hmm. service. And if all fails, watch Friends with Ben and Jerry's, and take a bubble bath. Amen. Like you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, and I I don't mean to like minimize it, but it's just like I think as it's an addict and alcoholic, yeah. Well, you just you I didn't have those coping. Like I, I was born deficient, like, you know, right. bodily and mentally different than my fellows, so to speak, right. as, you know, to, to quote the book of my 12 step program. Yes. But, um, so I didn't have sort of the, the coping mechanisms that maybe my friends who have to deal with the same circumstances have, and it just rolls off their back. It's like, for yeah. me, I sit in it. So to do, to get out of that, I have like tools that I use, you know, and then yeah. that's sort of what I do. And it's, it's just all part of understanding that like, I am human. You are human. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. life is full of shit. And sometimes you have to sit <laughs> in the shit. And sometimes you just have to goddamn sit in it. It's you true. Sit in it. It's true. I was going to ask you, like, how do you self-regulate now? But I guess that's it. You meditate, you go through all of those lists of things and like that gets mm-hmm. you through. Did you always know it was a long, like a long-term decision or did you think like, eh, when I'm 35, I'm going to be able to drink again? You know, like when you're 18, how do you digest that from an 18-year-old's perspective? I think I was so scared from that experience and I knew that that's where it took me, that I was just fine saying goodbye to it. You know, it was just like not worth the risk. And now when I think about it, it's like, yeah, sure, for sure I have moments or have had moments where I'm like, oh, but I was 18 Mm -hmm. or who knows? Or Mm -hmm. maybe just a sip of wine, you know, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I have, I've had thoughts like that. I feel like that's really important to talk about. Yeah, to say, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm immune to that type of thinking. But when those things come up, I'm like, the life that I have Like, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I wouldn't fall into the depths of despair and, like, smoke crack under the 405 bridge again. Maybe not. That being said, my life right now is so amazing. Why in God's name would I ever risk it for what if? Mm -hmm. And that, Mm -hmm. like, I know where that takes me, and I haven't seen where this life takes me. So I'm just... That's beautiful. trudging this road, you know? I love that. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> amazing. Um, how has sobriety changed you? Well, I think it's made me more accountable to myself, more aware, 
I think sobriety is really about having a mental, emotional, and spiritual awareness mm-hmm. that allows me to leave this confines of my of my mind mm-hmm. and to to sort of I don't I don't want to sound cheesy, but it, to really like it's a different level of surrender. Mm-hmm. And I think it just made me an overall healthier, more aware person, not a perfect mm-hmm. person at all. You know, I mm-hmm. have bad days. Sometimes I'm a bitch when I don't mean to be. Sometimes I'm hard on myself when I shouldn't be. Sometimes I um, do things I wish I didn't. I have mm-hmm. to say sorry a lot. But it's made me accept that I'm a human And I'm allowed to be imperfect. And as long Mm -hmm. as I am doing the best that I can and willing to continue to take an inventory of myself, then, you know, it's fair game. You know, this is life and it's complex and it's not linear. And, you know, sometimes you make mistakes and you just have to be willing to sort of work through it. Yeah, and probably made you like a lot less judgmental of yourself, like as you said, and of people around you, just knowing that Mm -hmm. shit happens to everyone, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a wonderful place to take another break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Let's wrap this baby up. I just have three more questions for you. What is a topic you wish women, either in your industry or in general, would talk about with each other or would share with each other? Well, okay, I do, now that I'm at the age where everyone is like freezing their eggs or mm-hmm. talking about having babies or having babies, mm-hmm. as someone who has not frozen their eggs, not had a baby, and isn't really talking about having babies, when I hear these conversations, I'm like, what happens? What? What? Why <laughs> yes. do I not know that? And like, where the fuck was I that? I the same like, way. Sex education. Sex yes. Yeah. Like, yes. Well, I don't know this. Like, oh. Like someone was telling me about an episiotomy the other day, and I was like, "Now what happens?" Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, I'm sorry. excuse me. <laughs> and stitches? What? Yeah. yeah, and and I wish we were having those conversations. You know, I have a girlfriend who's going through the process right now, and her healthcare coverage is under SAG, which is the Screen Actors mm-hmm. Guild, which is where my healthcare coverage is, and I. She's her. She did a round of IVF, and unfortunately, wasn't able to get any viable embryos and. Um, or eggs. And I was like, oh, well, you should do it again. And she's like, you know, and it costs this much. And I was like, oh, well, doesn't SAG cover it? And she was like, no. And when we started mm. digging into it, they cover Viagra prescriptions for men, me- but they don't, <sighs> yes. And they don't cover our ability to reproduce at a later date because most of the time we're focusing on our career. And it's like, if yes. women were having these conversations and not afraid to talk about these conversations, yes. I guarantee goddamn to you, we would have changed the medical mm-hmm. guidelines for SAG and advocated for those things to be changed so that my healthcare oh, could 100%. cover my reproduction. So I, yes. I wish that was something. Fertility and 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 those types of things were real I more readily that. discussed. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I just feel like, you know, these conversations are of criticality, like mental health, substance abuse issues, mm-hmm. everything we're talking about right now, women's issues, like mm-hmm. these things, like you said, we don't really talk about until they affect us. And so we carry as women these burdens. Yes. And oftentimes we do it silently. And there is mm-hmm. such a great community of women out there that can uplift one another, enact change. I mean, look what we've done with the Me Too movement. It's like, why did we have to wait? 
so long for so many people to suffer and to become survivors, to be able to do something about it. And so I, I yes. just, I wish that we would share our stories more. Kara, I'm like going to give you a standing ovation for that answer. That I mean, I'm like, Kara for president, everybody. Oh. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. I would really <laughs> fuck this country up. <laughs> it, hey, we need some good fucking up. Not in the bad way. But yeah. yeah. Um, okay. What is a way in which you're working on yourself these days? You know, therapy, something you're reading. We talked about Al-Anon, a new habit Mm -hmm. or ritual. What's some way that you're working on yourself? Gosh, I mean, you really covered it. I mean, I, I read Glennon's book. We talked about Mm -hmm. Glennon Doyle earlier. I read Untamed. Mm -hmm. I sent it to every woman in my life for Christmas. Yes. Literally. Everyone needs to read it. Everyone. Mm -hmm. Changed my life. Mine too. was so empowering. You know, I'm doing, um, I'm doing a sort of a deep dive into therapy. I'm reading a lot of Eckhart Tolle right now. That's a lie. I'm not reading. I'm listening to him because that mm-hmm. book is really hard to digest when you're reading it. I, I listen to it. But really sort of just like diving into sort of the idea of ego and self and, you know, separating, you know, me and my and I's from, you know, the the human experience. I know that sounds like so like ugh, spiritual, but... No, um, true. But yeah, so that's really what I'm doing for myself right now. You know, trying to meditate when I need to every day, um, praying, you know, just being being willing to like let go of self and outside of ego and just sort of tune into sort of like a higher sense of self and consciousness. That's, I love that. That's perfect. Um, what's something that people follow you on Instagram would be surprised to know? Well, I bite my fingernails. Do you? I know, isn't that so gross? <laughs> oh, no, it's not. It's not. My boyfriend does it so badly, but... It's so gross. I bite my nails. Um, I feel like as long as you keep them clean underneath, it's not so bad. Yeah. I love eating frosting out of a container. I love <laughs> container. to eat a container of frosting by the spoonfuls I love somewhat it. regularly. Okay, that's I, that's perfect, and that's it. We landed the plane. We're here. You're, you've sat through a very long interview, so I really appreciate it. Um, where can everyone find you? What's your Instagram handle, website? What are some future projects people can look out for? What's going on? Yeah, follow me on Kara Santana on Instagram. That's where like all my up to date information is and all the projects. I have some exciting things like upcoming that I can't really say right now because they're in the works, but I'm really excited um, about what's to come both production wise and fashion wise. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot going on. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. Seriously. Thanks for having me. I hope I said something that made sense. Oh my God. You were wonderful. Like this was, I think there are so many incredible things that you said, truly. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you- I'm so grateful. Excited. No, thank you for thinking of me. This was so fun. You have my number now, so text me anytime. Yes. Let's go to Al-Anon together. I would love to. I would seriously love to. Okay, let's do it. Hopefully you got as much out of that conversation as I did. The thing about Kara that I love and that inspires me so much is that she makes me want to be more honest about the things that I've gone through in the past because she gives herself grace and just how easily she talks about her struggles in general I find incredible. It reminds me that we're not our imperfections or our past actions despite us thinking we are and I think she's just revolutionary in that way. 
She could so easily be the other way and batten the hatches and not talk about any of her struggles, but she doesn't. And it seems so refreshing and so liberating to be able to talk about it as freely as she does. So now I'm really excited I get to announce the Tell Me About It hotline because you guys know I always want to talk to you and this is the perfect opportunity to do so. Um, I'm going to give you the number right now, but I really want you to text me or call me and leave a voicemail and tell me about something that you've gone through that you wish other women were more open about or more women talked about because you might have felt alone in going through it or you just think more women should share it with each other. Um, the voicemail is open 24-7, of course, and the number is 415-849-0299. So call me, beat me, you know, all the things, and we'll talk. Okay, so that's it for us today. I know people always say rate and subscribe, and if you're like me, you don't pay any attention to it, but I swear it helps so much and determines the success of this podcast. So please, I beg you, rate and subscribe. And if you want to continue the conversation, follow me at Jade Iovine on Instagram, and we can talk. And I will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week.